Well, I invite you to turn one last time with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, a book we have been working our way through in the scriptures this uh, this fall. We started back in August with this particular uh, book of the scriptures and uh, have had our delight to work our way through it as I was discussing with uh, one of our members this week talking about uh, different approaches to uh, preaching and teaching and so forth and going through different topics and going through extended series through a particular book of the Bible. Uh, I think we can all acknowledge this is one of the more challenging ways walking through chapter by chapter, kind of passage by passage through a book of the scriptures. So I just want to encourage you all and commend you all again for for hanging with it. Uh, it is uh, challenging to digest those full doses of God's uh, God's word. And you all uh, have been faithful to, to be here many week in and week out and coming prepared and coming ready to receive God's word, which is always a, a challenge uh, for all of us. So we're going to look today at chapter 16. I think uh, you'll be encouraged. It'll be sort of a, an easier jog the last mile of this marathon, if you will, in this way, although we'll read the entire chapter. It's uh, one of the simpler chapters in terms of the content, with the exception of the words of a few, the names of a few people and places. But even those uh, strange, maybe different names than we would hear in places we're not familiar with, actually communicates one simple and central message, and that is the interdependent, international nature of God's church, of God's people, of God's kingdom. As we read these verses, we're going to hear five different Roman provinces mentioned. Places from Europe all the way to what we would call the Middle East. Uh, Jewish areas all the way to Arabian areas of the world. Greek and Roman, urban and rural. And as we read through this, we're going to see that picture of the interdependent international church. And we'll also see right at the end of these verses that the folks back in the Apostle Paul's day in Corinth were not all that different from us today, waiting expectantly, kind of remembering through Advent the expectancy that folks had for Christ to come and the continuing expectancy that we all have for the second coming of Christ. O Lord, come. O Lord, come. Read along with me silently as I read aloud then with that introduction of chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians. Now concerning the collection for the saints, saints just means believers, not a special class of Christians, just all those who believe in Christ. Concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. As he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come and when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I'll visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door 
for effective work has been opened to me. And there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urge him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence. For they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. And then finally, the churches in Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all. In Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, what a privilege. What a privilege we have had these last number of months and weeks to open up, to have in our hands your revealed truth. Allowing us to see the things of salvation and apply them into our lives, our hearts, our minds. And what a privilege again today as we come to the close of this particular part of your word to even have a picture in our mind of these places and these people and the beauty of your plan for an interdependent international church, your kingdom worldwide. We praise you for these good things that you're showing us. Even as we conclude this series, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if we read this final chapter of 1 Corinthians a little too rapidly, we might conclude that it's really little more than some parting words of the Apostle Paul and some parting directives to some folks in a church far off. Uh, An in-house discussion for the benefit of some folks in an out-of-the-way place removed from us by time and geography. But if we slow down and we look a little bit more deeply... We'll see that we have before us, as I've already mentioned, a prototype of the work that we're seeing the Lord do worldwide in our own time and has been playing out for centuries of an interdependent international body of believers that you and I are a part of today if our hope is in Christ. If a cursory reading of these statements would have us kind of miss that truth. 
it also would probably make us go too quickly to realize how relevant these verses are to the nativity that we just saw up here. You say, how are these things connected? Connected in these ways. Think about it for a minute. Wasn't the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ marked from the very, very beginning by an interdependent international connection? Who showed up? Were the wise men from just around the corner or from halfway across the known world? Did they come empty handed or with special gifts to bless? Why did Joseph and Mary have to go to Bethlehem? Was it because of a Jewish initiated census or a Roman one from a far removed governing power? And where did they go after the birth of Jesus to flee when Herod was trying to get rid of all his competition for the throne? Just up the road to Jericho? No, to a whole nother country and place, Egypt. That's just at Jesus's birth. Not even looking at Jesus's ministry to the Syrophoenician woman or the Roman centurion, which I liked how we added into our program up here, the nativity. That was nice. That was a, an added rendition. Or Jesus's ministry to the Samaritan woman. Jesus' ministry was international. The early church spread. Look at the books and the names of the books in your scriptures of the letters the Apostle Paul wrote and all these places, not to mention the ones we just read in today's chapter. Well, we're certainly going to delve more into this reality of God's international kingdom during our missions month time uh, next month. So we're going to spend a whole month really thinking about that. And in fact, some of the material I'm going to read in a minute is going, uh, I hope, to use for a basis with some others for a Sunday school class that we're going to do, looking at God's work globally. But, but, but listen to what this author, Philip uh, Jenkins, has to say to us today about how God's kingdom is shaping up in our own time in an interdependent, worldwide fashion. Listen to this. Think about the times we live in. Think about the things the Apostle Paul has written here. Philip Jenkins says we are currently living through one of the transforming moments in the history of religion worldwide. Over the last five centuries, the story of Christianity has been tied up with that of Europe and European derived civilizations overseas, above all in North America. Until recently, the overwhelming majority of Christians have lived in predominantly white nations allowing some thinkers to speak of European Christian civilization and conversely, radical writers that have seen Christianity as merely an ideological arm of Western imperialism. He goes on, he says, over the last century, however, the center of gravity of the Christian world has shifted southward to Africa, to Latin America. Today, the largest Christian communities on the planet are to be found in those regions. He goes further. He says, if we want to visualize the typical contemporary Christian, get that picture in your mind. It's the typical contemporary Christian in the world today. He says we should think of a woman living in a village in Nigeria. 
He goes on and quotes uh, John Mabiti, a Kenyan scholar. He said the centers of the church universal are no longer in Geneva, Rome, Athens, Paris, London, New York, but in Kinshasa, Buenos Aires, Addis Ababa and Manila. Whatever European or North Americans may believe, believe about the gospel, whether they may reject it, he says, Christianity is doing very well indeed in the global south, not just surviving, but expanding. I'll read one more section to you. He says this. He says, by 2050, only about one fifth of the world's three billion Christians. That's, of course, an estimate will be non Hispanic whites. Soon the phrase a white Christian may sound like a curious oxymoron, as mildly surprising as saying a Swedish Buddhist. Such people can exist, but a slight eccentricity is implied. What a picture. What a picture of how the faithfulness of those in centuries past reaching out in missional mindset, seeing even before its time the interdependent international church and sharing the gospel is now bearing fruit worldwide. Those are things to be celebrated, not things to be disappointed by. They may humble us a bit, but they ought to excite us because God's kingdom is going forth. And that's what we see laid out even in prototype form in 1 Corinthians 16. This main idea that while we wait for the coming of the Lord, they were awaiting it. Our Lord come, they said. We await the coming of the Lord. We should live as that interdependent international church. Well, we have a hard time with this, don't we? And why is that? We tend to be a little bit local and limited in our focus. And that's not all bad. I like the little uh, bumper sticker, you know, act locally, think globally. Because that's kind of what we try to do as a church when you think about it. I'm not sure what the folks with the bumper sticker mean by it. That's what we're doing when we invite a neighbor or a friend to a life group. When we reach out and serve in some ministry, when we care for somebody in need, we're acting locally for the sake of God's kingdom. To connect with the global work that he's doing. But it's a struggle for us because we can get a little isolated, ingrown and myopic if we're not careful about what the church is and what God is doing. The second struggle that we have is that we live in some tension here. On the one hand, we live in the most interconnected, internationally connected time in human history. Through the Internet, as you guys well know, I don't have to tell you, you can literally for free talk to someone eyeball to eyeball, face to face, see them, them see you all the way across the world. It's incredible. But we know that that hasn't solved the brokenness, the hatred, the kind of evil that we've seen in just the last month in Paris and in our own country in San Bernardino. We know that that's taking place. So we struggle with that tension. The connectedness is good, but the connectedness brings challenge. And lastly, we can be kind of discouraged, too. When we read about what's happening worldwide, that can lift our spirits, but it can also make us a little bit discouraged. Because, frankly, a lot of us are 
trying to talk to neighbors and friends about the gospel and trying to invite folks to connect up with a body of believers and come to church, whether they come here or come somewhere else. We're just hoping they would grow that way. And we're reaching and running into a lot of brick walls, aren't we? That's frustrating. Even a place like Birmingham, even a Bible Belt place, we run into a lot of distractions, a lot of things keeping people from the things of the Lord. That's a reminder here and an encouraging one of what was happening just in prototype form and that the story's not yet done. The story hasn't been written on us. These folks can project all sorts of things that they want to, but the Lord can snap his fingers in a moment, bring revival to our part of the world as well, right? We believe that, don't we? And we hopefully are praying for it. Look at the picture here we have of this interdependent international church. While we think about how we're waiting for the coming of Christ and living faithfully as an interdependent international church today. First thing we see here in verses one to four is this interdependence. And then we'll talk for a minute about the international part of it, which is sort of implied. Uh, first thing we see is it's a material. There's actually a material interdependence. You get the picture. They mentioned Jerusalem. And we know from the background and other passages and acts and so forth that Jerusalem was going through a particularly difficult time. Of course, they were the hub, the nucleus of where this gospel spread out to all the known world. They were the mothership, so to speak. And now they're hurting. Now they're suffering to to us. Some who go back to the covenant pres days. It was one of our mother churches. It would be like if that church was all of a sudden decimated and in need. We, we wouldn't turn a deaf ear to that. We'd say, how can we help? And the Apostle Paul gives them specifics even of how to do it and to set aside and look at how God's prospering them and blessed. So there's a material connectedness of resourcing. That's what we're doing, whether we think of it that way or not each week. When we say, I'm going to make a commitment to, to give to missions through Cross Creek Church. We're sending resources to other parts of the world to bless a church with folks that we may never see, may never interact with, because we believe that God's connected us even materially. There's also a connection in ministry. And this is implied by verses one through four. Uh, Paul says he's going to kind of go with the gift and they're going to send some people too, and they're all going to kind of go deliver it to Jerusalem. That wasn't just a little jaunt up the road. That was a significant journey. They're connected in ministry that way. And then look at verses five and following. Paul says he's going to come back to Corinth and visit with them. They're going to be able to help provide housing for him. It says that he would stay in verse six and help him on his journey. You know, that means get him loaded up, get him stocked up for his next stage of things. They're partnered together in ministry, but not just with Paul. It's not something special just for him. He goes on in verses 10 and 11, talks about Timothy. He says, Timothy, Timothy, who's coming from the Gentile background. Now he's ministering and they get to help with him. He's a sort of missionary kind of church planter person uh, in very much the same way that we're getting to uh, out of this church planting line. I'm send resources up to Gardendale on the other side of town with Wayne Shelton and see that church plant developing there. We're networked together materially and in ministry together. One of our elders serves on their temporary session. We're tied together in this ministry as believers, verses eight and nine, he talks about this door being opened for ministry in Ephesus as well. 
that there's this wide door being open for effective ministry. They're able to, they were the ones that sent Paul out there. After he was with them, he went to Ephesus and he's ministering there to a wide door of effective ministry. So material interdependence, ministerial interdependence, and then it's relational connection, isn't it too? Look at what he says in verse 7. He's swinging back through to say hello to everybody in Corinth and visit with them. But he says this. He says, I don't want to I don't want to see you now just in passing. Hope to spend some time with you. This isn't just he's not just a dignitary. He's not just a function. He's a person who knows them. He's relating to them. He's connected to them. We see the same thing playing out in the rest of the verses as we see the care that they show for Timothy. As we see in verse 12 that Apollos, he isn't mandated to go. He doesn't want to go right now. But he says he's going to come when he has opportunity because he cares about you. He's concerned for you. And then lastly, doesn't get too much more intimate and relational than verse 20, does it? Greet each other with a holy kiss. Remember one of my uh, professors mentioning all the elements scripturally that are could be included in worship. There's a lot of them that you can include in any particular worship service. And some of you probably wonder some weeks if we've tried to include every single one from call to confession and catechism and prayers and this and that. But there's a whole list of things. One of them, believe it or not, that you can make a case for is a holy kiss. We're not going to put that into play. We all we all know there's cultures in the world where, you know, even even men kind of greet with the little kiss. They don't actually, you know, kiss. They just kiss near their face. That's part of the greeting style. Many of us have been down to uh, to Peru and gone on the Mission trips down there. It's a little dicey time. Some some of us, Marty, <coughs> Marty, have had a little difficulty with this. You know, the the ladies initiate down in, in Peru, the uh, the little greeting of the kiss on the cheek. But you kind of get used to everybody doing it. So, if you know, you, you start to make that move. It's a little awkward when you've made that move. Some of us know that some of us just saying here know that awkwardness. It's a sign. What of this? We go and visit people that we've never even met before. In our lives that are in another part of the world that have totally different stories and backgrounds and a totally different language. And you walk in on that mission trip meeting and you meet them for the first time and they come up and they give you that holy kiss. Because why? Just like we're going to go see family in the next couple of days. And we, we won't shake hands with our family, although I got a couple uncles back in Pennsylvania. We got the stern German on our side and they, they still greet with a, a handshake. And I have to move in for the hug to go beyond it. You're not going to shake hands with the people that you're seeing. You're going to give a hug, maybe give a kiss. I don't know. You're going to be connected that way. It's relational. The Apostle Paul is describing this connectivity about these folks from all different places, all different cultures. All different, what we would call nationalities, connected in that way. It's a beautiful picture. Second and last thing that we see is that they're not only interdependent, but it is international. You know, in much the same way, we could say that uh, the modern mechanism of travel and communication and Internet and so forth allows us to connect worldwide the, the Romans, for their military and administrative purposes, built these roads. If you ever watch some of those History Channel shows, you know, they still can find them. The pathways are still there where a lot of the roads were built you know, thousands of years ago. Well, guess what else those roads did? 
The Romans didn't build them to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ and have that spread among an international community. That wasn't their goal. But the early believers used him for that. So let's get on this pathway. And, let's, and we've got folks in our own church doing that. Our own uh, Brandon Robbins is, is here in Birmingham. Doesn't, you know, travel internationally much at all. But he's here in Birmingham and helps run a program that trains pastors all over the world, even in places where they can't sort of publicly acknowledge their faith. And they take tests online and they go through some form of seminary training to prepare for ministry. Why? How does that happen? How can he do that? Because it's connected in that way internationally, even through something as simple as the Internet designed, I guess, for technology and for commerce. This is the same I mentioned earlier. You've got five different Roman provinces mentioned here. You've got everything from Europe to what we would call the Middle East. You've got Jewish uh, names and places and Arabian names and places. You've got Roman and Greek. They're all put together. Folks, I think you get where I'm going with this message today, hopefully. What's your picture of the church today? What's not only your picture, what is your vision for the church to be? And and not even just worldwide, for it to be here. How do we begin to become people who are more connected that way with people that are different from us and look different from us and talk different from us and building those relationships one on one? Maybe we don't all end up in the same setting for worship, but that'd be great. But at least building that connection across those boundaries and barriers, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Does this have application to some other things? Absolutely. Let me read to you. And I posted this on Facebook. We'll see if it'll pull up here on my little gadget here. Some uh, evangelical folks uh, talked about one of the implications of this. Now, let me say, hey, I'm as concerned about our security in this country as the next person, I think. Probably more, maybe, than many of you. You'd probably be surprised at some of my my personally held viewpoints. But here's a statement some some evangelical Christian leaders put out this last week that I think probably worthy of us taking a a look at. You can track it down online. It just says this. It says, impacting nearly 60 million people, the global refugee emergency is a humanitarian crisis of unprecedented size. Never have so many people been recorded as being displaced, put in danger, and sent on the move. Goes on and details some of that in specific places. Moments like these, this is a statement from a a number, about 100 ministers signed this. Moments like these are when Christians cannot remain silent and still. In light of the crisis, we commit ourselves and our churches to actively care for and minister to global refugees with mercy and compassion, both here and abroad. In light of these concerns, we affirm the following. Refugees possess the image of God and as such are valuable to God and to us. We're commanded to love our neighbor and it's our privilege to love refugees. As Christians, we must care sacrificially for the refugee and the forager, foreigner and the stranger. We will motivate and prepare our churches and movements to care for refugees. And we will not be motivated solely by fear, but by love of God and love of others. They go on and address the fact that it's not our job, although some of us may serve in the government, perhaps. 
to decide exactly how the government handles it. We can have our opinions and we can express those opinions. And yet at the same time, our calling as believers is to love those who are in need. They say this. They say we acknowledge that there are genuine security concerns and encourage governments to be stewards, stewards of safety. But we also observe that choosing to come to North America's refugees would be among the least effective ways for those who intend to do us harm. So as governments oversee matters of security, we will care for the hurting, calling Christians to embrace those in need uh, through their nonprofits, providing immediate and long term care, housing, food, clothing, employment goes on a picture of how we can live this out. Right. How we cannot just have a vision for this, but we can put it in practice. Let me encourage us to do this while we're meditating on maybe we've got a book we're reading our child with the manger scene or we've got one set out in our house with the nativity scene and so forth just think about the matters i mentioned earlier about the folks from different places that came to jesus's birth about where he fled to get protection about why they were even in bethlehem and about how god is orchestrating his work across the nations and the beautiful privilege that you and i have to be a part of it Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that we live in such a time as this. Oh, Father, we uh, would be discouraged in some ways as we sometimes get rather narrowly focused and limited in our attention to just what's right around us. We pray that you would give us eyes to see what you're doing. Worldwide and how we're connected to that. Father, we confess as well that we would get a bit discouraged by our frustrations with the lack of response sometimes in our culture to the gospel. We pray that we would take encouragement, not only that we can pray and seek your hand of revival, that these hard places around the world, there's now tremendous fruit being born for you, that that might happen in our own part of the world, but also that we would celebrate. Rejoice with your outpouring of your working worldwide. And Lord, even as we celebrate Christmas, even as we're focused in on those matters, help us to see in it this interdependent, international body of believers that uh, you have called us to due to nothing special about us. In fact, we in our own doing would thumb our noses at that kingdom. But you've been privileged as the king to invite us in. And even to lay down your life for us to enter. And we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.